Hey guys, how's it going? Good. Hey Will, hey Michael. Hey Peter. Hey Michael. How are you, Peter? Yeah, we didn't get to you last time, Peter, so we'll start with you. Uh, I don't have much to say except uh, long week, but we're realizing through repetitive attempts at this introduction that you can't say anything without some sort of innuendo coming into it. That's right. We're talking to Olenka Zapancic, the author of What is Sex? She wrote the book on it, and we're very happy to finally have spoken to her. Super interesting conversation. We get into a variety of topics, including What is Sex, conspiracy theories, some new work she's working on. We'll have two episodes out, one for the patrons. You want to hear both of them. That's right. You should join our Patreon. We're starting to sound exasperated again. Oh, I thought I was doing a good job. I thought a Pete was all right there, yeah. Well, was it okay? Okay. Uh, listeners, we've tried this introduction a few times. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah. We got Patreon at $5 a month. You can get part two of this interview, many other episodes and interviews, and general support for all the good work we do here at GJIC and so on. And we appreciate all of the support, all of our new patrons. Hello and thank you. And uh, let's get to the interview. Cool. Let's roll it. Hello. Hello. Hi. Hello. Hi. How are you? I'm fine. Thanks. And you? Good. Good. Great. Great. So you can hear me well? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yes. Okay. Perfect. Nice to meet you. Peter is in Toronto. I'm in New York. And Michael is in Australia. Okay. So it's, it's, it's a- all over the place. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And we, you were the guest early on that we wanted to speak to the most. So it's very exciting that we finally uh, got you on. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's nice. So we'll start with yeah. uh, how did you first get introduced to philosophy and then psychoanalysis? Because I read that you enjoyed Freud's case studies. Uh, yeah, actually, this all happened um, in a kind of in, in um, at the same time. I mean, this was the time when I was uh, uh, in high school, and uh, it was the time when kind of. Uh, Theory and philosophy really exploded here in Slovenia, particularly through Zizek and uh, some other people who were uh, then really starting to starting not only to publish their books but also translating uh, uh, Lacan, Freud, and some of uh, and some of philosophy. Uh, and actually, I came across it first. Uh, I think the, the Slavish uh, Slovene book, which is called. Uh, history and the unconscious was the fir- my first encounter, let's say, with this kind of uh, combination of philosophy and psychoanalysis, and I was immediately intrigued by it, and uh, I decided at that point that I would study philosophy, although what went on at that point, uh, the philosophy department had nothing to do with with uh, <laughs> Slavoj's work at this point, but still, I mean, this was when I realized that there was 
such thing as philosophy and that it could be done differently from whatever ideas about it I I had at that uh, time in a way that is really kind of uh, intriguing, interesting, different, uh, compelling and so on. So this was then both philosophy and psychoanalysis Uh, yeah, I kind of came across this in high school, and then I immediately start tried to read. I mean, these these are difficult texts, some of them. Okay, Freud's not so difficult, so this was a very good entry. I mean, case studies, particularly uh, Dora and Ratman, they were the first two that I read, which are full of, uh, yeah, you can smell theory, you can feel theory, but at the same time, it's also, yeah, it was also something that spoke to me as, uh, let's say, adolescent then, and with all the kind of questions and issues that one has at that uh, point. So this was a very happy encounter, let's say, with very exciting one also. Mm-hmm. And then you ended up studying with Zizek at- Correct me if I'm wrong, but like maybe the only year that he taught, is that is that correct? Yeah, this is correct because the, there was this just even not the whole year. There was one semester during which he officially held a course at the, the University of Ljubljana, and uh, he was also obviously related to the department in the uh, sense that he would be in, posi- in the position to uh, supervise. Uh, uh, these things. Uh, so mm-hmm. yeah, I was then uh, least. I mean, he had this one course, but he had some other things and lectures outside of the university, which I also started to follow already before. But these were not on a regular basis. It were events organized, like um, singular events. But nevertheless, mm-hmm. he was present at that time also as somebody who was giving talks mm-hmm. also in Ljubljana, much more so then than than now. <laughs> really? Can I can I ask very briefly what he was like as a teacher? Was he like kind of the same as we see him and we t- we speak to him now or was there Yeah some- he hasn't changed a lot. Yeah. I mean uh, it's uh, it's kind of something that and uh, it's uh, he never as he himself likes to say he never grew up and became <laughs> magnified serious thinker <laughs> yeah. that would, you know, take himself too seriously and then expect others to, to do as well. So, uh, no, obviously, I mean, as we age, we change a bit, but um, basically he was a younger version of what you see now. Mm-hmm. Uh, after your education, you kind of become more involved in the kind of project or uh, influence of the Slovenian school. Uh, how would you understand that project? Yeah, I mean, this is something that really was happening at that point, like uh, in vivo. Uh, so the, the whole naming of it came much later. I mean, when I, I was becoming part of this, there was no such thing as Slovene Lacanian School or Slovene School or Ljubljana School or whatever. This is really something that was created uh, many, many, many years, even decades later, and it came from the reception of these things from the state mostly, I guess, and I also like telling this funny story that sometimes people would come to Ljubljana and ask to see the Lacanian school, which is not a building, there is nothing <laughs> yeah. of, the, of the kind. Uh, it's just yeah, a bunch of people kind of doing similar things and also living in some kind of uh, 
um, affinity, complicity, uh, doing it. So, yeah, I don't know. I was uh, I, I, I was studying and I was already becoming also outside of the whatever this official part, uh, friend with um, Slavoj and, uh, and Mladen particularly. Uh, they invited me to this journal that they then um, um, had problemi, which I'm now like kind of... A, uh, editing for many, many, many years. Uh, so yeah, there was a uh, uh, admiration, obviously, but then friendship and then friendship collaboration, whatever. But uh, I was really intrigued by the whole uh, thing, this combination of psychoanalysis, Lacanian psychoanalysis, Freud and philosophy. So I did this in Ljubljana and then I also went to Paris because, okay, for me, it was a kind of still at that point of this thought, uh, this combination. So yeah, I studied also there with uh, with Badiou, uh, but in Ljubljana with uh, with uh, Zizek. Yeah. So, but it kind of just spontaneously, I became part of something. Uh, I don't know. This is the <laughs> and the 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 name, the thing itself mm-hmm. only like retroactively became what it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, the 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 now whatever the famous and famous. Uh, do you think it's something specifically about Slovenia? Because I know I was I was reading um, Zizek and his contemporaries, and they were speaking about I think one of his teachers. I forget I forget his name. And then there were, it was mentioning some kind of punk scene that was occurring. Does that ring true or is it an, an aberration? Uh, yeah, I, I think I know the book that you are referring to. Uh, I think there were many many things. You know, it is always uh, very attempting to try to explain everything from the context that was there and which mm. was definitely a very singular specific context uh, particularly in the 80s which were the the period of uh, extreme turmoil turmoil i mean the, many many things were happening there were this kind of uh, major tectonic shifts that started taking place in the so called so uh, civil society and then led to some political changes and so on and so on uh, so there was also this uh, feeling that you had at the time because let's say the uh, the severity the grip of the party was already losing and it mm-hmm. losing and it was also not kind of you, know, you didn't really risk uh, a lot if you said something that was not completely in the according to the party line but at the same time there were still censorships there were repercussions and so this created a kind of a strange um, uh, um, and interesting atmosphere where you really had you know we have this proverb in Slovene that the world is not a horse which means it cannot really do things it cannot mm-hmm. break down or so it's just a word but there at that point, you really had the impression that words did have a power to directly <laughs> affect things, change, lead to something. Not only words, also pictures, paintings, uh, exhibitions, music, concerts. They were these things that soon late, later became kind of, okay, culture, art, uh, you go there. But this was a very singular moment when these things had some kind of explosive power and everybody responded that immediately felt interpolated by these things. People were going to uh, philosophical lectures who were not at all from the philosophical background, or you know. The, so it was a there was a certain social dynamics which was very important, and which was which was important in the kind of uh, 
general universal resonance that these ideas uh, had uh, in society. Everybody knew about Lacan. I mean, Lacan is very difficult, uh, complex, but, but uh, it was a name, you know, that just everybody knew on the streets almost because it was yeah. part of something else. Uh, but uh, apart from this uh, specific context, I would say, I mean, Slavoj's teachers, not really in the sense that in Slovenia, I mean, his uh, whatever teachers were French in the sense of uh, this is where he kind of, uh, mm-hmm. the kind of theory that was, that he was most interested in uh and i would say that his um what he did really constituted a kind of break even though there, there was the context but it was like something else started there which i don't think can be reduced to any past influences or whatever uh, uh things there was a certain uh, clear break uh, into the way in which uh, philosophy was done up till ten point, that, that point. There was a similar break that uh, took place um, uh, in sociology, for instance, also at that time uh, via the guy called Rast Komochnik, for instance, and then some other people started to think in other fields in similar, but there was a, a definitely something which I don't think one can uh, reduce to any kind of circumstances without um, losing precisely. There was a certain, I mean, uh, not miraculous in the any kind of uh, obscurantist sense, but there was a certain coincidence. Something happened. Many, many came, things obviously came together uh, to, to, to produce this. But it was, uh, yeah, it just happened in a way. Mm-hmm. I think we want to angle into your what is sex book now, if that if that works. Look, you know the actual the act of intercourse. Oh my god, you're asking me for sex tips. Pass me that carver and the big pack of Tyrrells. It's a girl's night in. <laughs> so we know you've been asked heaps about it recently. So we'll try not to bore you too much, Alenka. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have an anecdote for you. So in 2004, when the mayor of fucking Austria was asked. If he'd changed the name of the town, he replied, everybody here knows what it means in English, but for us, fucking is fucking, and it's going to stay fucking. So what are we talking about when we talk about sex? And it occurred to me, like, when adults are put into the position to explain sex to children, it turns out that the secrets of sex are secrets to the adults themselves. (laughs) I I mean, this is partly why I wrote this book, (laughs) Precisely starting out, not starting out as a kind of self-designated uh, expert on sex and on what is sex exactly, <laughs> but precisely to to bring out uh, the whole thing as a kind of not simply as a question, but also as a kind of a, uh, enigmatic thing that is part of practical empirical things that are always there when there is sex but at the same time a thing that cannot be located precisely in any of these things or set to uh, put one cannot put one's finger on it directly and say okay this is what a sex is okay fucking is another matter we can say okay i see it's <laughs> fucking is going, but even there, one never can be uh, sure what form this can take and what uh, uh, what can count as uh, fucking perhaps, perhaps even if we don't necessarily see it in this way. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but yeah, no, for, for me it was not so. I didn't write this. I mean, 
sometimes we were joking after I was asked uh, after the book I was invited to give talks and um, sometimes you know there were even this comment at some point that actually with my book I managed to take all the fun of sex, which, <laughs> yeah. I, which I took as a kind of compliment because the book was definitely not about uh, trying to sell sex to people or trying yeah. to ameliorate mm. the way um, this happens. For So it was really a kind of, um, I don't know how to put it, but... Uh, um, the, the 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 aim there of the book was to kind of bring out and to insist on this kind of a very complex texture of sexuality which we find in psychoanalytic concept of sexuality and mm-hmm. i insist precisely on this term concept because uh, sexuality sex in this sense that i kind of try to um, talk about it is not one thing you know, it's not a thing in this sense, but uh, it is a concept that um, brings together, that relates many, many different things, not simply as a kind of compendium of these things, but at least this is my kind of ontological thesis there. It relates them through their own negativity. All of these things itself themselves are not simply something fully um and entirely meaningful it themselves there is a certain point in all of them which does not necessarily work or is not clear or so so in the 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 sexuality the sex is precisely uh, this kind of knot of these different dimensions of our life of our activities of our practices of our thinking of our speaking and so on uh, which kind of brings together uh, and names this um uh interesting uh, negativity which at the same time produces very concrete and let's say positive uh, effects mm-hmm. and uh, and results so it is a concept and it is not uh, one thing and then i obviously go in very different ways trying to uh, both expose uh, the the problem of thinking of it just as this or that uh, thing but also trying to um insist on certain uh, paradoxes such as precisely that uh, it was not so much the insistence on on sexuality um, that uh, brought uh, psychoanalysis a kind of a bad reputation at the beginning when Freud started to talk about this. Okay, uh, infantile sexuality was directly um, a problem, uh, and but the 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 point is and was, I think, uh, one very well articulated by Lacan, namely that what was really scandalous about Freud talking about sexuality, about the unconscious and so on, was not its alleged dirtiness, but the fact that it was so intellectual. Mm, you know, this yeah. was the scandal, that it was precisely not, if we can just reduce uh, sex and sexuality to these whatever dirty or simply banal things that we do, whatever. Uh, uh, when we copulate, or so, then, then it would be okay. We can be we can censorship it a little bit, but it, it's precisely uh, this psychoanalytic concept of sexuality is so much more than this, and so much more interestingly shows how uh, through all these unconscious formations and so on, uh, actually sexuality is involved in something that thinks, that produces puns, that produces uh, poetry, that not as replacement of uh, having sex, but as something which in itself 
is more than itself. And this is precisely what uh, what sexuality is all about. You know, sex is not simply, not only it is not simply reproduction, is it also not simply copulation in the sense of even if it's not uh, reproductive. Uh, this is why I also use this expression. We say we can, it, it makes sense to say sex is sexy. For us, uh, Composition is sexy, so there there is a difference between what is just the let's say physical act of doing something, and its quality that we it is always a surplus quality that we attach to it, saying this is then sexual. Huh? It says that this surplus meaning itself is part of this negativity that I was uh, talking about before, uh, which kind of endos very different things which have necessarily nothing to do uh, with uh, copulation or something like this, but endos them with this surplus quality that also counts as sexual. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, I, you, you, you managed to ask our next question. I was, I was just going to say something that you speak to in the introduction to your book that Lacan's defense of what he calls the authentic dimension of psychoanalysis as having something to do with the intellectualization of sex. But there's also the philosophical problem of psychoanalysis. And maybe before we get into more questions about your theory of, of sex, maybe we can set up also the philosophical problem of psychoanalysis. Why not just philosophy? Why uh, or just psychoanalysis? Uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, as I also tried to explain in several introductions to my whatever, I mean, uh, the, uh, my different books. Uh, for me, uh, this is, uh, and it has always been uh, very, very important, and the very um, drive of what. Uh, I was trying to think and how I was trying to think about these things, namely that there is a certain dimension of psychoanalysis uh, already in Freud and perhaps there it is called metapsychology, you know, this kind of, because theory, I think, is a way of perhaps um, dismissing too quickly this question, what exactly is the relationship between psychoanalysis as let's say clinical practice, which, ha which has its own concepts and so on, and mm -hmm. philosophy. And sometimes we say, okay, theory, there is uh, clinic, and then there is theory, and clearly theory is related to philosophy. But the more I think about it, the more I'm inclined to to, to say that it's not simply theory uh, in the sense of kind of generalization, drawing general conclusions from case studies or particular whatever singular cases, uh, but that there is something much more and that the and which has to do with the speculative actually, not simply with theory or conceptualism and that uh, core psychoanalytic concepts are speculative concepts in the best uh, sense of the term, uh, starting with the unconscious. The unconscious is not simply, uh, does not refer to something that we can like um, empirically observe in the sense of directly observe, uh, look at it and say, okay, there is, uh, uh, because precisely up to till Freud, this concept uh, or whatever this term did exist unconscious, but it meant something very, very different. It was not a concept. It was a term used to designate the opposite of consciousness. You know, uh, you don't uh, even, you know, all the organic processes in your body are unconscious. You are not conscious of them. They go on. But this is not the same thing, obviously, as this concept of the unconscious, which uh, brought in so many 
other different things uh, and so many things which are in in a sense speculative not only in the sense that they cannot be directly observed but one needs to uh, to one can only conclude to their existence based on other things that one can observe. So in this sense, it is speculative, but also in the sense of more Hegelian, let's say, uh, idea of the speculative as precisely this kind of paradoxical identity of the subject and the substance and so on. So uh, many different levels. So And for, for some reason, for me, this was always what uh, interested me most in psychoanalysis, because I... I read all this uh, not as philosopher because it was at that time I was um, only just becoming both involved both in philosophy in psychoanalysis. So I cannot say that uh, I started off as philosopher reading psychoanalysis, but uh, they went in pair. And what really uh, intrigued me is precisely this kind of a speculative, let's say, dimension of psychoanalysis, which is not, which cannot be eliminated or abstracted from its clinical um, part, but nevertheless is to some degree independent of it and can also be, I think, not only used, but also further developed on the, in the context of certain philosophical questions and things. And not to talk about how important it was for Lacan and for the formulation of all these concepts, um, not only unconscious and then uh, repetition, you know, which is also something that, okay, relates to Kierkegaard, but not only him and so on. So there is uh, this kind of dialogue with philosophy, in spite of all the dismissing uh, or whatever anti-philosophical claims that he makes was extremely important. And um, I think that, uh, on the other hand, uh, this kind of encounter of philosophy, uh, the the, uh, philosophical encounter with psychoanalysis produced from the very early on, after Freud, with Freud, a kind of extremely new and interesting facet of philosophy itself. I mean, there was when this Freud or uh, psychoanalysis, I I claim in this conceptual speculative way as well, is an event that happened also to philosophy. And that philosophy, I think, should not ignore or behave just this is some other field, it's not us. I think it really, if you look at it um, seriously, it cannot but affect the way philosophy was done up till that point. And one can, it's difficult to to ignore uh, this um, kind of event and its implications also for for philosophy. So like you're saying, like the way that uh, psychoanalysis presents the notion of the subject has a kind of question that's that philosophy needs to answer. For instance, subject is a very, very interesting example uh, because, you know, if you are, I don't know how much uh, the, the listeners are uh, familiar with the, let's say, history of contemporary philosophy, uh, but the, the notion of the subject uh, has or still ha- uh, had uh, in, or still has in some um Quarters a very bad reputation as a kind of something that belongs to the old traditional metaphysics, for whom subject was the one, blah, blah. Um, so the there was a very strong current in contemporary philosophy, including contemporary French philosophy, where when at the very moment when Lacan was um, 
uh, around and giving his doing his seminars that was complete that really saw the subject as the bad apple in the uh, barrel mm. of philosophical concepts we need to 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 get rid of this concept uh and there were some very interesting uh, and famous uh, philosophers who did this, like Althusser uh, and so on. This is uh, we need to do it with without. Um, and in a way, you can say that uh, this is a kind of um, divide that crosses the 20th century philosophy as a kind of prolongation of the old uh, divide between, let's say, Hegelian and Spinozist. Um, to put it very, very roughly. Um, ways of doing thinking philosophy. Uh, but anyway, so there was uh, nobody among philosophers who would, except for some old, whatever, completely unimportant uh, academics who would still operate with the term subject, but uh, there was practically no one around at that point who would dare to kind of insist on this no, the term on this notion. And what Lacan did actually is that he reinvented the, the notion of the concept in a completely new and different way, which was very, very compatible with the, all this anti subjectivity. But, but because he was able to nevertheless insist on one point in which subjectivity could be said to be irreducible, not because it is so important or so rich or so I don't know what, but uh, because it is, it formulates, it gives body to the very uh, gap, to the very impasse of the structure of the substance of the being itself. So as a kind of sim symptomal point that helps you detect and navigate the problems with the structure, uh, whereas if you just say structure is everything, uh, then how do you even think about this critical, uh, paradoxical uh, lapses of the structure which do occur, not because somebody wants them to occur, produces them like fully consciously in terms of uh, uh, ego trying to do this or that, but precisely as the kind of, uh, yeah, symptomatic neurologic points of the structure itself. And, which, and these points are absolutely crucial if you want to have any kind of critical thinking about the structure saying okay here this breaks down here it doesn't work so why is it well how so and you need so in a way Lacan I think was really able to reintroduce this um, concept of the uh, subject in a completely uh, new way uh, which had nothing to do with this kind of traditional metaphysical subject uh, but which kind of really made the very landscape of the structure of the substance much more interesting and kind of uh, non-monolith in the sense that it is uh, um, it's the part of the structure which does not uh, fully work and so it <laughs> I think this is a very good example. And then truth is perhaps another way, something that also almost everybody gave up as a term. It was no longer truth. Oh, this is old. But uh, the, the way that, uh, Lacan psychoanalysis managed to keep the very notion of truth as something, as something different from accuracy, uh, facts, and so on, as something, uh, and without this kind of, uh, um, I don't know, pathetic authenticity thing, but simply as something which is more and or other than simply um, 
yeah, accuracy uh, and so on, a dimension uh, of speech which does uh, does not necessarily have to do with whether uh, what you say is true or false, but uh, actually presupposes the whole ed uh, the, the whole structure of uh, speech and uh, um, kind of um, yeah holds it. Great. So um, you spoke a bit towards this question in your answer there, but in your book, you suggest there's a kind of inhuman dimension of sex. So why is the inhuman uh, a necessary dimension of what makes us subjects? Yeah, I mean, this again is a thread that I think goes throughout the book, um, namely this question of uh, human and inhuman. And um, because there is one, let's say, uh, humanist um, approach or perspective on this, uh, which goes like this, okay, uh, sexuality is something specifically human. It uh, makes, it exposes us to different things. It makes us uh, vulnerable. Uh, so in this sense, also it uh, makes us uh, human. Uh, we can base our specific difference, let's say, as species, as whatever, on the fact that uh, the, the, of, on this specific uh, sexuality, and um, what I wanted to to say or argue is that um, yes, of course, there is something specifically human about what we call uh, sex, but this nevertheless uh, only. Um, comes to be or only uh, happens uh, because sexuality itself uh, is for humans an encounter with something that kind of seriously throws us out of joint, not something, uh, not a thing in which we uh, we find ourselves as in something familiar and okay, this is now our territory, you know, we can now, this is our sex, we know. It, it's the opposite. It is precisely something that is part of humanity, but at the same time represents a point of uh, like inhuman in this sense that it disorientates us. It, it doesn't, when, oh, when you awake sexuality, it's not something that provides you a clear goal and anchor and saying, okay, now I'm well anchored into in, in my humanities now I have sex it's the, the other way around it it usually happens it throws you yeah uh, out of the end it makes you question all kinds of things and also uh, makes you uncertain of many 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 different things mm -hmm. uh, so in uh, it is something that in this sense make us in encounter with something inhuman not in the sense of monstrous or whatever bad or but simply something which is not that which is not something that we can immediately recognize and feel at home with uh, but on the contrary something that introduces a certain kind of let's say in a good sense again alienation mediation mm -hmm. something that needs time and place and many many things through which it is uh it can be articulated like an innuendo for instance right yeah this is yeah innuendo is a interesting example which uh i think uh um precisely in the sense uh i think you probably refer to this uh when i uh, talk about the origin of comedy 
Uh, and you know there is this uh, theory about the the origin of comedy that it actually came out of these ancient rituals, Dionysian rituals, in which um, people would kind of uh, celebrate uh, the, uh, the fellows in the sense that they were like holding up literally pr processions, uh, moving around these huge uh, fellows made of uh, whatever animal skins, but really kind of huge and in colors and whatever. And then this is very interesting. This is from uh, Aristotle, I think, um, at the same time, seeing this, uh, this uh, songs full of innuendo, sexual innuendo. And uh, I was like, kind of startled at this image, which is, you know, um, you are, you, you, you have this kind of innuendo. Uh, at the same time, you are allegedly, supposedly carrying around the thing itself. You know, uh -huh. you don't hint yeah. at the fellows. Right? You don't say, mm -hmm. "Oh, the, the the thing," you know, behind this clothes or whatever. You kind of fully expose you. You will carry around the huge <laughs> fellows of gigantic proportions, and then you uh, use innuendo. <laughs> For me, this was a kind of clear. Um, image of precisely how uh, innuendo should not be understood simply as something uh, referring to what cannot be there because of some uh, censorship or prohibition, but, uh, but kind of like uh, as something uh, essentially referring to something, but in this reference itself constituting the thing that mm. is allegedly uh, behind. So that there is no, uh, and the, this is precisely, and I think I also use this example, this is one of Rowan Atkinson's uh, stand-up uh, things where he, uh, uh, the, the, what he does, it's very simple trick. Uh, he basically pretends to be a, this um, schoolmaster or whatever who enters the class <laughs> and then uh, calls students by names to verify the the the, the presence uh, and there are just this uh, all these dirty words like yeah. uh, <laughs> names, uh, whatever clitoris um, I mean like alphabetically or just names right, come on settle down please <laughs> answer your names anus <laughs> bottom Clitoris. Uh, and actually, it is very, the way it is constructed, uh, for, and it's, it's a really funny thing because then, of course, he does some more puns with it, but basically, he calls all these dirty names allegedly as, the, the, as they are uh, names of the students, mm -hmm. and we laugh uh, at it. Uh, but yeah. what is really interesting about this scene is precisely that he's not alluding to clitoris or whatever mm. anus. He's literally saying it. He uh, says out the word, but the words still function as the allusion to themselves, to something, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. so there is this yeah. kind of innuendo itself. And this is also interesting because I, I really think it um, clearly demonstrates also how sexuality functions, not some kind of direct thing as opposed to innuendo, but precisely the uh, sex is this kind of innuendo, you know, implying I, itself in the very, uh, there is no like directly doing it. You, you can have direct sexual intercourse, but the, the sexual, what is sexual about it comes precisely through this 
thing that cannot be directly named, but nevertheless is produced in this very um, indirectness or in this uh, kind of innuendo. Yeah. <laughs> uh, another um, embarrassing personal anecdote. I have your copy of What is Sex here, and I I wanted to read it in public, uh, but I didn't want to appear like I was reading a kind of like instruction manual on sex. Uh, so I, so I penned out the, the word sex in black ink. And then after a while carrying around my, my bag, the, the pen came off. So not only could you see the word sex, you could see that I tried to cover it up. That's <laughs> <laughs> wondering what you thought of that. <laughs> yeah. I know this makes me think a little bit of this, um, anecdote this story that I use you know at the end of the book I think about uh, uh, the, the question of the navel you know the the, the question of um, um, because there is something about uh, sex being covered or uncovered uh, uh, which obviously is precisely the way in which what I called before this kind of a uh, uh, positive enigma of se- uh, of sex of what is sex uh, exists and i use this uh, anecdote i mean uh, anecdote it's a story um that it it's a true story that uh, that uh, happened um, and it is related to it is known under the name of adam's navel you know the question of adam's navel uh, which it seems that uh, there was a point at which there was a serious uh, theological discussion concerning whether Adam, the first man, who was not born from a woman, but created by God, uh, did he actually have a navel or not? Because if he was really created, then there is no reason for him to have it. But as the first uh, man uh, or first uh, human being, uh, he should look like other human beings and so on. So there was uh, this interesting debate about Adam's navel, its presence or absence, uh, and different schools of whatever uh, uh, theology that were struggling with this. And it seemed that this was also, you could perhaps risk something if you did not paint as a painter than Adam in the right way. Uh, and that it seems that uh, these are early artists then kind of um, dodge the question by uh, by the in way in the following way, namely that they extended the fig leaf, which was hiding the sexual organs, the sex, a little bit further up so that it covered the lower belly as well and the navel. So there was no longer a question, is it there or not? It was covered. Mm-hmm. And for me, this is a very good, again, rendering of this point <laughs> about sexuality that actually this thing about sexuality, it's not the, the penis or the sexual organs like uh, hanging down below this fig leaf, but precisely uh, navel. This is also... in. Okay, it relates directly to to this beautiful image uh, that Freud has of a uh, dream and the navel of a dream, which is precisely the point when dream becomes, it's a point um, where the interpretation could no longer proceed or produce anything. It's the the dark, the the navel of the dream. And I think Mm -hmm. there is something navel-like that structures precisely sexuality uh, as such. And then 
it happens you you erase it and then it appears even strongly <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah. that it uh, and its meaning uh, gets all but intensified in this uh, i mean it gets uh, intensified in this uh, gesture rather than um, yeah obscured or uh, yeah return of the repressed <laughs> 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 yeah, but you know, this is uh, yeah. Uh, the, the title it, it's funny because I, I had this really really boring title under which I wrote the book, uh, which was Sex and Ontology, which is really I think uh, it was good to change this title, and it was actually the then editor at the MIT that came up with this idea, which first shocked me when he put that I should call the book <laughs> What Is Sex. Uh, but then I slowly turned. I mean, came around and uh, kind of. Uh, but it's uh, the yeah. It, the title definitely can be misleading in many ways. <laughs> and speaking about this anecdote, you know, like I don't know why my son was what like um, ten or eleven when this book came out, and uh, uh, I don't know, you know. The rumor got around that uh, his mother wrote book. What is <laughs> that? Must have been hell for him. <laughs> yeah. So we wanted to ask you about um, your essay on "Don't Look Up," which the the movie that came out uh, a couple years, a year and yeah. a half ago or so, that we the three of us really liked. There's a certain coincidence between conspiracy theories and liberal mainstream hegemonic discourse today. So I wonder if you could speak to that to begin with. Actually, this is something that I've been working on a lot lately. And if I can use this opportunity to make yeah. some publicity, actually, there will Please, be a yeah. very tiny book uh, uh, coming out with Polity, which is uh, precisely about this. It focuses on the relationship between this avowal and, uh, let's say, um, denial, which is what we, which we associate more directly with conspiracy theories. Thank you. 